0: Charles will now bring us a gospel message. Good morning. Our gospel reading today contains some of the most profound verses of the Bible. Leon Morris, in his commentary on John's gospel, has 16 pages On the first five verses. Don Carson in his commentary on John's gospel only has 10 pages. It's been said that John's gospel is like a pool in which a child may wade and yet an elephant may swim. It's both simple and profound and I suspect I will be neither. John seems to have latched on to this word logos in Greek, the word. And we get many English words from logos, logic, biology, and zoology, the study of life, geology, the study of the earth, theology, the study of God. Logos was an important idea in Greek philosophy. Back in the 6th century... BC, Heraclitus used it to describe the world's soul, or the soul of the universe, or an all-pervading rational principle. In the 3rd century BC, the Stoics thought of it as the eternal reason, or the principle that permeates all things. And it's quite possible that John latched onto some of these ideas in claiming that the word was something supremely great, something fundamental, some rational basis for the universe. Albert Einstein famously said that the most incomprehensible thing about the universe was that it was comprehensible. And mathematicians have said that mathematics is unreasonably effective For some reason, when we think about the world, when we propose theories about the world, they're actually true. There's a regularity and a rationality behind the world, and that's behind the word logos. But for John, he came from a Jewish background, so for him, the word was understood probably more in that context. And so when he starts his gospel in the beginning... That immediately reminds us of Genesis chapter 1, which starts in the beginning, God created. And John makes it clear that the word that he's talking about was involved in creation. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that was made. Genesis tells us that God created with his words. He said, let there be light and there was light. He spoke, and it happened. The Jews personified God's words, as we read in Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. I don't know how many of you uh, know John Lennox. Uh, He is uh, a professor of pure mathematics at the University of Oxford, probably emeritus prep. Professor by now, and he's a world-renowned Christian apologist, and he was in Adelaide in 2014 and gave a talk at the University of Adelaide titled "Cosmic Chemistry." And in that talk, he spoke of an incident, a dinner that he had at Green College in Oxford, where he was sat beside a world-famous biochemist. And as usually happens in these occasions, they asked each other what they did, and uh, Lennox said that he was a pure mathematician to which the the uh, biochemist responded this is going to be a boring evening uh, and Lennox said well actually I'm interested in the big questions like um, whether the universe was created whether man is made in God's image and so on and uh, the, the biochemist responded this is worse than ever um, it's going to be a totally wasted evening because I'm an atheist and a reductionist and we've got nothing to talk about. Well, of course, I wish I could tell you this story the way that uh, John Lennox does with his Irish accent. But uh, at least they agreed that they were both methodological reductionists, by which they meant that they solve complex problems by breaking them down into smaller things, solving the smaller ones, and hopefully that gives you a clue as to how to solve the big problems. And the biochemist agreed, but he said, no, it's more fundamental than that. And Lennox said, yes, I think you're an ontological reductionist, which means that you believe that everything can be explained in terms of the simple components. Um, So ultimately, everything can be explained in terms of matter and energy, physics and chemistry. So Lennox challenged this neighbour to explain the meaning of the menu that they had in front of them it says here roast chicken can you explain to me what that means in terms of the components in terms of physics and chemistry these are just marks on the page tell me what it means in terms of the paper and the ink he couldn't of course because the meaning of language comes not from the components from the intelligence behind it And Lennox comments that DNA is the most complex language. Our human genome consists of some three and a half billion letters chosen from an alphabet of four letters. I think they stand for proteins. It makes much more sense to say that it arose from an intelligent being rather than pure chance. And in the first verse of his Gospel, John captures the notion of a rational, rational, creative God behind the universe. But John also points out that the word is an enlightening or an illuminating word. It enlightens the world, it enlightens us, it brings illumination, it helps you to see things the way that they really are. John says, in him was life, that life was the light of all mankind the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Uh, I've been working my way through a book titled Paris, the Secret History. It's a pretty grim book, it tells you all the gory details. But the thing that particularly bothers me is the history of anti Semitism in Paris, which apparently dates back even to the 12th century and it made me wonder how could the jewish nation have survived how can it be that this small insignificant certainly on a world scale nation survived over the centuries there were so many times when it was almost wiped out they were in egypt oppressed in egypt in the promised land there was the threat of the philistines assyria cleared out the northern kingdom Babylon took the southern kingdom into exile. The Greeks under Antiochus Epiphanes in 175 BC almost wiped them out again. The Romans in AD 70 overtook Jerusalem. And even in more modern times, there's the Holocaust. So many great nations disappeared, but this one survived. How could that be? Uh, When Isaiah was commissioned in the temple, he was told that he would have a message that people wouldn't listen to, and that would bring judgment, and he, in desperation, called out, how long can this be? And he was told, until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken, and though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. So even, the nation would, even though the nation would be decimated and decimated again, the holy seed would survive. The light would shine in the darkness and the darkness wouldn't overcome it. And we might ask the same question about Christianity. How is it that it has survived all the serious challenges that came its way? Um, there was Gnosticism in the... I think that was must have been about the 2nd century. In the 3rd century, there was Arianism, which taught that Jesus was a created son. And some of these ancient heresies led to the way that the Nicene Creed is phrased nowadays that we still use. There was Albigensianism, I think that was about the 5th century, which taught that good and evil were two equal but opposite forces and the the body was evil and the spirit was good. There was the French humanist philosophy Voltaire. There was the scientist Charles Darwin and his theorist Of evolution, so many challenges, and yet Christianity has survived. G.K. Chesterton was a journalist early in the 20th century. He was a great Christian apologist. He had a whimsical way of arguing for the faith with simple images, and he had a significant impact on C.S. Lewis. He wrote a marvellous book titled The Everlasting Man. And the last chapter in this book is titled The Five Deaths of the Faith. And there's this marvellous paragraph which reads, At least five times, therefore, with the Arian and the Albigensian, with the humanist sceptic and after Voltaire and after Darwin, the faith has to all appearances gone to the dogs. But in each, case, these five case, in each of these five cases, it was the dog that died. It's very easy to get depressed about the state of Christianity. We might look at our church and what we have lost or seem to have lost. We might look at our society and the decline of Christian influence. And yet, even in the most unlikely places, Christianity has survived. Countries like Russia, China, Albania, Islamic countries have tried to eliminate Christianity but it keeps getting resurrected. Or as G.K. Chesterton writes, Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. Well, I can't leave this without also thinking at verse about verse 14. The word became flesh, made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I don't know whether it's tied to my stage in life, but I've been pondering what I call the paradox of life, or if you like, the paradox of um, consciousness. You see, if I think of myself against the background of the universe, I'm totally insignificant. It's the same sort of thing you get if you're in the country, and a cloudless night and you look at the stars and you think, who am I? Who am I? I'm an insignificant person on an insignificant planet on the edge of the galaxy somewhere. And yet if I zoom in and think of myself in everyday life, I think about how the events of the world impact on me, I think about how I relate to other people, their effect on me and my effect on them. It's as if I make myself the centre of the universe. So how do you put those two together? Totally insignificant and yet significant. And I think the only way I can resolve that paradox is to think that the creator of this universe is concerned about humanity and about us as individuals. And the extent of that concern is shown in this verse that says God sent his son to live among us and to die for us. Maybe that just replaces one paradox by another. But at least that paradox is grounded in eyewitness testimony. Or as John writes in his first epistle, that which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life.